Hello, welcome to Learn It From Layman. My name is Carl Christensen. I'm back again with uh, Matthew Christensen, uh, Tim Cox, and uh, we have a special guest today, as we are occasionally want to do. Uh, this time we've uh, invited, um, of course, our father. Well, not all of our fathers. Tim is can't claim that distinction. Sorry, Tim. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm happy with Uncle. That's that's a nice title too. Yeah, we figure with all the um, nepotism going around in the world these days, we might as well uh, start with our uh, with our dad, who we uh, we're going to discuss today a little bit about college, uh, about writing in general, writing, publishing, auth- um, becoming an author, and uh, and so let me give a little introduction. So Bryce Christensen, uh, doctorate in uh, is it just English, Dad, or uh, English like literature. English literature. Okay. Doctorate in English literature from Marquette. Um, a number of former jobs. Currently professor at uh, Southern Utah University. Been there for, what is it now, 15 years? Uh, like 20 years. 20 years. Okay. And Almost. Uh, Almost. Yeah. And then, um, let's see, uh, author of what? Uh, four books? Four or five? Published books, yeah, yeah, something like that, and then um, a number of poetry uh, poems, and uh, and so that uh, establishes your credibility there, Dad. I think um, so. You've been teaching uh, besides the twenty years at SUU, you've taught uh, so the, uh, second language learners uh, and uh, high school chemistry, which is not related to this podcast, but uh, useful. So. Uh, let's start a little bit uh, talking about uh, about writing and what makes a good uh, a good writer a good author. Um, I guess specifically. So um, let's start with a little bit with what you're what you do right now when you when you teach students. Uh, what are some of the issues you see in in people as as in students as they're as they're writing any any type of writing essentially? What are some common mistakes you see? Well, you say any type of writing. Uh, Students need to recognize writing is not one thing. Uh, the kind of writing that you do to a, a friend to uh, explain what happened to you this weekend is a very different kind of writing than you do when you're analyzing a book or uh, analyzing a movie. Or the, uh, and even those two, you might actually, in a letter to a friend, analyze a book or movie, but it will be a different kind of analysis than you would do for a, a class, a university class. Uh, audience and purpose affect writing. Students don't always understand that. If you know uh, who, who is going to be reading what you write and why they're going to be reading it, then you have a better uh, what we call rhetorical posture. The rhetorical posture is defined by your sense of audience, your sense of purpose. Uh, now, part of the problem with students is the only reason they're writing is because they have this requirement to satisfy to get their degree. They don't right. really want to write. They really don't have a, a, a genuine sense of audience. They just want to get this out of the way, the, this requirement. Uh, students start to write well when they when they have a, a sense of audience and they actually do want to connect with that audience. Uh, some years ago when I was teaching at 
at Rockford College, which is now Rockford University in Illinois, uh, I had a student who had trained me like a Pavlovian dog to, <laughs> to, sh to shudder when I saw his name at the top of this is back when uh, all of the essays were hard copy. When I saw his name at the top of a hard uh, essay, I, I, I knew it was going to be bad. And, and I would shove it to the bottom, uh, his essay to the bottom of the stack, hoping that just maybe the world would end before I got there. Um, and, uh, but late in the semester, he submitted an essay in which he was personally invested. He had something, he, he had a sense of audience, he had a sense of purpose. I'm not sure I agreed to it. He was, he was, he was apparently very much a basketball fan. And I was, uh, was doing something on persuasion, persuading, persuading some. And he was arguing, I think his thesis was dubious, but, but he did it with some passion. He was arguing that uh, Charles Barkley, this is again decades ago, Charles Barkley is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. All right. And uh, <laughs> that was well written. I thought, his, I thought his argument put too much emphasis on rebounding. Um, but, but he, what made, what set this essay apart, made it worlds better than anything he'd written, is he was invested. He, knew, he wanted to persuade you. He, wanted, he had found statistics that, you know, as they said, I, th I thought he was overemphasizing rebounding, but he knew what he wanted to do. This wasn't just an academic exercise. He was invested in it. He wanted to persuade you that Charles Barkley was a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. Um, and that made his writing so much. I mean, previously, I had been painfully aware as I read his essays is that he didn't want to write it. And I sure, surely didn't want to read it because um, when, when you have a clear sense of audience, you have a clear sense of purpose, suddenly your writing starts to, to cohere. That it takes, um, it, it takes a clear form. The, the, the biggest problem with students is they don't have a clear sense of audience. They don't have a clear sense of purpose. But their sense of purpose is, let's get this stupid thing out of the way. Right. Um, and that, that is not a sense of purpose that will yield a, uh, a, a good, persuasive, cogent essay. Okay, so that makes sense. And uh, though... Uh, I guess I know, so. My follow-up question would be: Okay, so I know in in let's say take journalism for example, there are things that as a good journalist, even if you have you know what you're trying to report on, you're trying to um, that just because you know who you're trying to speak to, you just know because you know your purpose. There are still good journalistic practices that you need to employ um, in order to right. write a good article. You know. Uh, is that the case in writing then as well? So in, independent of journalism, in writing, even if you know your your purpose and you know your audience, there are still particular things that you need to incorporate in good writing? Well, yeah, it's still, I, I just have a hard time thinking of writing as one thing. If you're doing technical writing, um, that's one. If you're doing, there, there, there is a kind of um, writing which is expressive, expressing what's in your, your heart. Your, uh, I read it not too long ago. It's, it's a book, you can look it up. It's a University of Virginia Press book titled Reading Through the Night by Jane Tompkins, who's a literary scholar. 
and it's a remarkable book in which uh, the Professor Tompkins, now an emeritus professor, uh, recounts how after she had retired, she discovered how much books can illuminate your, your personal emotional circumstances. She acknowledges in the book that her, and she had a successful career as a professor of literature, but her approach had been very cerebral, analyzing things intellectually, uh, very little connection with the uh, um, emotional valence of works. And uh, now, and, and the title of her, her book, Reading Through the Night, and suddenly she recognized that literature, and how she got through a career in literature without being aware of this, uh, puzzles me, to put it mildly. But suddenly, um, literature was not simply a cerebral uh, exploration. It was a, an emotional engagement. And if you're writing, if you're writing from the heart, if you're, uh, in, in, in you're expressing yourself, that's a different kind of writing. Um, I, I actually have students do um, personal response essays to responding to literature because literature does carry an emotional valence. But then we do, and I have to emphasize that when, when we do a, an analytical essay about, uh, about an essay, I don't want to know about their personal experience. I do not want to know about their personal feelings. I want them to analyze the, uh, the character development or the setting or, or the, uh, the theme and the vertical pronoun can disappear because I don't want to know about. So personal expression uh, can be a very legitimate form of writing, but it's quite different from the, uh, the objective analytical mode of writing. Uh, so that when, what makes good writing? Well, writing is not one thing. It's, it's, uh, and, and so good writing is not one thing. It's um, it is, is what will. Um, th there is one thing which I think is fairly universal. Uh, writing is serving your readers. You should be the servant of your readers. If your readers complete your your essay, your poem, your novel, whatever it is you you've written, and they feel well served, they feel well satisfied. You've done your job as a writer. If uh, if you meet and satisfy the expectations of your readers, that's what writing is about. But of course, that requires you to reflect on reader expectations in, in the situation you find yourself. So, what what you're doing? What will readers expect? And then you set about satisfying reader expectations okay so as this podcast is a learn it from a layman podcast we won't i won't continue delve we won't go too deep further into the uh into that subject we try to you know keep things nice and uh well in as sure. much as you can. um though we did recently do rocket science so uh some might argue that this podcast is just a misnomer uh but um I thought we'd talk a little bit about the the building blocks of writing then. So a little bit about various writing technique techniques. Some people okay. are very familiar with, but 
you know, like similes, metaphors, those are, I think, most people are familiar with. But maybe yeah. we talk. Yeah, go ahead. Because similes, metaphors are, uh, those are relevant in poetry, uh, much, much, much less relevant in prose, and which is non-poetry. Expository writing is one form of prose. Uh, it's, it's maybe the, uh, the form of writing uh, which matters most for many people in in uh, professional settings. Expository writing means explanatory writing, writing that that well exposes to view relevant issues. Uh, it it um, and uh, uh, actually, you know, when you things like metaphor, metaphor can actually slow the reader down because metaphor requires reflection, contemplation, and, and sometimes metaphors can be rather opaque, rather uh, in a letter that he sent to a friend, it's remarkable that he kept any friends. Uh, uh, well, William Blake, the 18th century poet, um, was responding to his friend's complaint that his poetry was difficult to understand. And, <laughs> Uh, Blake responded, I cannot make all things plain to an idiot. Um, <laughs> I, and, I, we uh, should make a shirt that says that. <laughs> and, and if you're a, a towering uh, imagination, like, I mean, Blake was a genius, um, also a madman, but um, Blake, he could do that. And his poetry is not a quick, easy read. But for most expository reading, the objective is to make as many things plain to as many idiots as possible. <laughs> you, okay. you, you, you want to level things out, which means you're not going to do too much with, with, uh, with metaphor. Uh, you might, if the metaphor is, is easily, of course, the easiest, simplest metaphors are, are cliched metaphors. They're, they, they cease mm -hmm. to have much, you know, like dead as a doornail began as a metaphor, uh, it's now a pretty mm, flat one. It doesn't really have much imaginative vigor because it probably had some imaginative vigor when it was first coined, but, uh, but when metaphors age and they become um, used widely, they, they, they lose their, their force. But, uh, but you don't need to use metaphors and probably not well advised to use too much in the way of metaphors when you're writing expository writing. Okay, so that that makes sense to me. I do wonder. So I know you know. Let's say we, for example, any type of writing, you you don't want to do do sentence fragments, right? Um, um, well, you know, you say any type. For most professional writing, you're absolutely correct. But uh, in uh, in certain some kinds of creative writing, just just been teaching um, my students at a National Taiwan University. We've just been doing Huckleberry Finn. And that novel is told from the perspective of an uneducated uh, adolescent boy. And his, his speech, which is right, I mean, we're, we're hearing the novel from the mouth, as it were, from the mouth of this uneducated uh, teenage boy, is full of uh, sentence fragments and and uh, non-standard verb forms and and all kinds of the 
you know, I, I tell my students uh, who, uh, who almost all of whom speak Mandarin Chinese as a first language, and uh, um, and English is their second language. Their their mastery of their second language is is impressive. But still, so you spend a lot of time learning the standard form of the of the English language. Now we're going to read a novel where that standard form is thrown out the window. Uh, <laughs> we we have an an uneducated um, adolescent boy telling the story, and he violates the uh, the uh, expectations of uh, those who've learned standard English again in the end. And it works. It's part of the genius of the novel. Part of the genius of the novel is we, become, we come to really believe. We can really believe we're listening to this uneducated boy. So creative, you know, but for most professional writing, you want to conform to the rules of, of uh, standard and that standard English that would mean no sentence fragments. It would mean that your your subjects always agree with your verbs that you use the right verb forms for subjunctive and imperative. It would mean that you use uh, correct uh, case form and pronouns and so on. All, all those things you do if you're. It's sort of like. Uh, and I use this metaphor uh, uh, with my students. I said, if you're going for a job interview, you dress up. And you, you, I mean, you don't wear a tuxedo, but you, you groom yourself and you dress professionally. You dress professionally. If you're doing um, an essay for a professional forum or an academic forum, you, as it were, dress up. You, you make sure that all of your, and in, if, if you use um, an incorrect uh, pronoun, if, if you, for example, uh, if you say um, him arriving early surprised me, now that's a non-standard pronoun form uh, because gerunds take possessives. If you say that in casual conversation and your friend corrects you, you need a new friend. Uh, but, Tim, you. But, <laughs> I, but, I would never correct that. <laughs> but 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 if you use the the uh, the wrong pronoun form in formal writing, and someone's you know read the, and your copy editor doesn't catch that, you need a new copy editor. The the uh, what really um, writing. Uh, uh, in professional forums and in, in serious academic forums is really a different form of uh, of the language. It's not, it, it overlaps with the spoken language, but it's not the same. It, it's uh, uh, the, the rules we, we expect professional writers to follow, academic writers to follow, are, are uh, those rules we often relax or even disregard in, um, in casual speech. I, I have to say that I have not been pleased by the bleed-over effect of texting, because texting is a uh, is a, a mongrel form of writing, which uh, which shreds um, <laughs> the, the the normal rules for 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 diction and orthography, punctuation. And I see that the malign influence of 
texting and student writing. They, uh, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it, it's not a beneficent influence. So saying right. that would be an LOL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as an sorry, just as, as an explanatory aside, I realized at the beginning I don't think I explained to the, our audience that currently you are not at SUU. You are at the University of Taiwan in Taipei, uh, as what well, you were Na a full Na National Taiwan University. National Taiwan University. Sorry. N NTU. And to you, and uh, you were there as a Fulbright scholar because of the whole coronavirus insanity. Um, the Fulbright pulled all of their professors out, giving them the option to stay if they wanted to. And so you are currently not a Fulbright scholar, but you are still a visiting professor at and I whatever it is. Yes, Taidong is what they call it here. National okay. Taiwan University. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Okay, so that's 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 the expla explanation as why all of your students speak Mandarin. I bet they were our, our audience might have been wondering why all students of SUU speak Mandarin. So, um, all right, prerequisite. Not the case. <laughs> uh, right. So, um, okay. So back. On, yeah, you said there there are um, uh, certain things that you need to conform to if you're doing essentially professional writing of almost any type you said other than creative you, you want to um you want to make sure that you uh, adhere to a particular set of basic rules um when uh, uh what do you in, in writing do you do you t teach those things at college level or do you just assume that your students already know what they need to not use yeah. in professional writing and are, are we we're still talking. I don't know that we ever addressed it. Did, did you want to talk about what those basic writing building blocks are? Well, well like, yeah. Know, they, I mean, they, sentence, they, you, you want, right. I, I mean, Dad talked about it a little bit, right? So, no sentence fragments. You want to make sure that your verbs uh, are conjugated correctly. Um, those type, you know. Um, there, there, there are, uh, and there are real rules, and then there are phony rules. Um, and phony rules, the real rules are the ones which uh, you see uh, observed and followed in well-edited uh, magazines, journals, books. Um, they are the, the linguistic habits of the educated, the linguistic habits of, of the professional gatekeepers. Um, and they change over time. They change over some, um, the, the who, whom distinction, which I um, honor and follow. They, I had a friend at, at Rockford College uh, uh, who said, you know, because I get exercised over things such as this, <laughs> the, the, the who, whom uh, distinction. And uh, John said, just wait a century and the whole issue will be gone. Um, and he's probably right, because uh, uh, that distinction is is fading, um, which I which grieves me, saddens me, because I think uh, we you communicate uh, valuable syntactic information by getting the uh, the case form right. But um, uh, there the the rules are. Uh, are those that editors and um, 
and gatekeepers uh, observe. But there, there are some phony rules out there, like you can't begin a sentence with a conjunction like and or but. And I, I, my students, I say, now, how many of you are taught this in high school? And, and um, quite a lot, most of them are taught that. And it's a bogus rule. Um, it's a completely bogus rule. Well, how do we know it's a bogus rule? Because you pick up books from university presses. You pick up uh, high-level journals like Atlantic Monthly or Harper's. And, and you see writers doing it. And the writers do it. Their editors let them do it. Um, and, and, and as I said, the, uh, the real, real rules uh, don't get past the gatekeepers. Uh, I mean, they, they, they're enforced by the gatekeepers. That's a bogus rule. Um, some, some and, and again, another bogus rule. Some uh, students have been taught by high school And I understand high school teachers. Uh, uh, they, um, because a sentence that begins with a uh, conjunction might actually not be a sentence. It might be a, uh, a sentence fragment. And uh, there, there's this bogus rule. You can't begin a sentence with the word because. Well, that's a bogus rule, too. Um, but I understand why a, a sentence that begins with because and doesn't have an independent clause to, um, to connect to it is a sentence fragment. Uh, and, but we have these bogus rules. There, there's an excellent book. Let me plug this book on, the, on, on this podcast, and that is Style. Uh, by style uh, subtitle colon subtitle 10 lessons in clarity and grace um, the early editions were by Joseph Williams he's taken on a co-author whose name I don't remember but the early editions I think are just I'm, I'm not persuaded that the later editions are any better um, the uh, and you can you can get it uh, Amazon.com used books. You can you probably pay more for the shipping than for the book because it's a widely used book, and uh, for some reason, some students are willing to part with their copy after their classes. Uh, I keep my co- I keep my copy under my pillow. Um, it's it's a it's a wonderful book, and he distinguishes. He talks about real rules. And these bogus or faux rules, these rules that aren't, aren't legitimate rules. Uh, do I teach my students? Obviously, I do teach my students some of the rules. And I also unburden them. I take from their backs the weight of bogus rules, the rules that they need not observe. Uh, I teach, I'm the only um, grammar teacher at, uh, I mean, I'm the only one who teaches a class entirely devoted to grammar. Uh, at Southern Utah University. I'll be teaching it uh, this coming fall. Um, the, uh, uh, and there, and grammar is not punctuation, but it affects punctuation. Grammar is not uh, writing, but it affects writing. And so we, we, we talk about uh, things like comma splices and how... Uh, an understanding of, um, of clause boundaries. And you can't recognize clause boundaries unless you know the grammar of clauses. 
can help you to punctuate correctly. So I do teach some grammar. And I said, grammar is not punctuation, but if you understand grammar, you're much more likely to get the punctuation right. Okay. So as far as, uh, I guess, moving on from the building blocks of, of language then and, and writing and, and what might be useful to uh, to know at the, uh, at the college level for writing, I think some of the other questions we wanted to touch on, or at least I would like to touch on, are um, a lot of people, uh, aspiring authors, aspiring writers, want to know what it takes to get published. And I, obviously the answer for that is different depending on, on the genre that you're trying to get published. But obviously whether you're trying to get a novel published or a non-fiction book or a poem or a research paper or something like that. So I guess let's try to knock these off one at a time. I know a lot of people are interested in writing their own novel. You've published one, working on publishing your second novel. Any words of advice or steps that you need that someone needs to go through to publish a novel? Are you saying how to someone to pay for your novel or you pay to get your novel published? Because Amazon will publish anything for you if you give them like a couple hundred bucks. Right. Self-publishing is essentially free. But I, I mean like the traditional publishing route. Uh, right. Uh, and and the, uh, the publishing can... can um, can be very challenging, very daunting. It can take you much longer to find a publisher than um, it takes to write your novel. And you may never find a publisher. It's a, it's, it's a challenge. There are, um, uh, of course, the vanity press that you pay your, but, but that's just your money if you want to do it. Uh, and occasionally, uh, books published that way actually then find a significant audience. So I'm not going to say that's always a bad thing. Um, but uh, it's better if you can find a publisher who will take the, the burden, take the risk, and also take the task of marketing um, uh, from you. But um, it is a real challenge. The best thing to do is, is research. Look at what you've written or what you're in the process of writing. What is it like? What is it like and who's publishing it? Uh, do, do some kind of comparison that, uh, and find out what publishers uh, have uh, uh, published the kind of thing that you're writing. And then um, now uh, some of the, the, the best publishers won't even talk to authors. Uh, they only talk to literary agents, and so you have to try to, to find an agent, and that can be difficult because agents um, make their money by uh, by placing manuscripts. Uh, they will be quite selective what manuscripts they they uh, they take on. So uh, just finding an agent can be a challenge. So, um, I, I, I have not published enough um, in, for, when, and when you talk about a novel, I haven't published that much as a creative writer, uh, writer and I've actually done more with, with standalone poems than with book-length works, so I'm not sure I'm the best source on that. I do know kind of what's involved. I know my first novel, it was really hard to find a publisher. I was delighted when I finally found one. The second one, I've 
you got a better publisher and the process was easier, maybe because uh, uh, because I already had one novel uh, on yeah. on the resume, but but, it, but finding a publisher finding a publisher is uh, is is I I have a colleague at Southern Utah University who teaches uh, creative writing for for fiction writers, and he says finding a publisher is like winning the lottery. Right. So I do think what you mentioned uh, has to be somewhat important and something useful for for um, inspiring authors to know. Uh, you said you you had a novel. Your first novel was more difficult to get published um, than your second novel, a and you also have other works of you know that you've had published in the past. So you have some some previous experience that you can put on a you know a letter that you send to the publisher. So right, if and that you, helps. So essentially, if, if you want to get a novel published, it might help to have, I mean, I know also in this social media area, era, if you have a social media following, I'm sure that would also help you get published. So there are other things that you can bring into bear when trying to get your novel published, right? I'm sure, yeah. The, uh, the, the, if you're just breaking in, it's hard. I mean, because uh, publishers look for a track record and how do you get a track record? If you're just breaking in, um, it's your the so breaking in can be really tough. All right. Okay. Um, as far as um, poetry, you said you've mentioned you've you've published a number, well, a large number at this point of poems, even a a book or or two of poetry. So. Um, what uh, what was the the process? What is the process to get uh, a poem published? Um, the uh, I, I've been in, in the last couple of years. Most of the poems I've published have been by request from venues. I don't they think most people get most people don't get no. requests. <laughs> but that 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 takes getting to a certain point. But uh, again. Um, what kind of poetry do you write? Who's publishing that kind of poetry? Uh, look at what you do. Look at what try to try to come up with a match between if you do. Uh, um, for, I do mostly formal poetry. I do uh, I do uh, sonnets particularly. Do uh, metrical rhyming poetry. Uh, there are many venues that won't even look at that kind of poetry. Um, and so you have to, to uh, establish who uh, who will publish that kind of uh, that kind of writing. Um, the and and, and so do your do your research. Do your research on on the uh, editorial expectations of the venue you're going to send your poems to. Right. That makes that makes sense. Uh, how do you. Um, OK, so let's talk a little bit about. So you've worked for a long time. And one, another thing in your short auto, uh, your short biography I gave at the beginning of the, the podcast that uh, you've, you've been a reviewer, a book reviewer for um, for Booklist. Um, Correct. So for the uh, laymen out there that are listening to our podcast, what, can you explain what Booklist is and what you've done for them? 
Uh, Booklist is a review journal for American libraries. It's, it is the uh, review publication for the American Library Association. And they, they publish short reviews of new books. And uh, I have reviewed uh, books in literature, in science, in language history, um, in, in the topics such as that, uh, religion. Um, and um, for me, it's been an education to review the books. Uh, and uh, I've been able to then uh, turn some of the things I've learned by reviewing these books actually into some of my own writing. But yes, these are not full blown book reviews, they're just short summary reviews. But uh, I've benefited a great deal from the experience of, of doing those reviews for 30 years. Yeah, that's. Uh... A lot of a lot of reading, I believe. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so I have I have some other questions, I, but there are a couple I wanted to kind of uh, touch on before we we wrapped up the podcast. But before I do so, I don't know if uh, Matt or Tim or Cameron had any questions that they wanted to touch as far as just gen generic writing questions that we, that we could uh, discuss. Yeah, I, I got one. Um, as you. Uh if if you're sitting out there, as we all are, thinking, I want to be a famous author someday, but I just don't know what to write, um, what are some recommendations that you could give to an aspiring writer in terms of just how to figure out what to write about, uh, how to get an idea, how to get an inspiration, what types of things work for you, and what types of things would you recommend people uh, attempt in order to figure out what to write? Well, I'm not a famous author, so uh, I'm not sure I'm the best. Well, we're not a famous that, but podcast, but that doesn't <laughs> stop us from talking like it. Yeah, there's a, I think of uh, the, the poet, the wonderful poet I recommend his work, Howard Numerov, who said, write about what you know. That will leave you with a lot of spare time. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, and to go to his own work. For example, he, one of his um, famous poems, and it's a very moving poem, I wish I could quote it from memory, um, entitled A War in the Air. And it's, uh, it's a very moving poem about something he knew very well from the inside. From the, he, um, he, He's been deceased now for a number of years, but but uh, the war in the air is about his experience in the Army Air Force in um, World War II, uh, and he knew that. And his and the the poem conveys his sense of his sense of uh, emotional knowledge that this is not. Uh, uh, and, and so write what you know. Write what you know. The the. Uh, um, I've just been teaching uh, Willa Cather, a wonderful American novelist, who said that her writing career really began when she just started to remember. And, and the, the, she was writing about what she knew as a, a young girl uh, growing up on 
the the plains of Nebraska, and her so-called Prairie Trilogy grows out of her deep personal knowledge of that world. Write what you know. Write what you okay. know, and and, uh, and as Howard Merrill says, uh, I, I love his little uh, his sort of snarky add-on. Write what you know. That will leave you with a lot of spare time. That, I, th I think for the layman, the, the danger there is they don't know anything. So it's not. Um, <laughs> well, that, kind of kind of makes you wonder about the uh, sci-fi and fantasy authors, you know. Um, <laughs> That's oh, right. I, I have to I, I have to share have to share that uh, Joseph Epstein, wonderful a wonderful uh, scholar. He was in fact he was the editor of the American Scholar uh, for for many years. But he wrote an essay a couple of years ago entitled The Bookish Life. And he talked about all his reading. And he talked about all the books that he's getting on in years now. He, uh, he talked about all the books he still wanted to read, most of them ancient uh, uh, Greek and ancient Roman texts, things he still wanted to read. And acknowledging his advanced years, he said, obviously, um, some of this uh, reading will have to, to happen after I've passed on. But he said, I'm confident that heaven will have a large and well-stocked library. And then he added in a sort of uh, a snarky fashion, uh, hell will have a large library too, but it will contain only science fiction and fantasy. Well, that's so, just, uh, offended a large portion of yeah, the people listening. So There goes the uh, Harry Potter fans amongst our audience. That's okay. <laughs> Um, okay. Although I, w I will point out, um, you know, one of the high fantasy authors, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, allegedly based a lot of the Lord of the Rings trilogy on his own personal experiences, even um, in including his experiences in World War One. So, you know, when you say write what you know, it doesn't need to be... Uh, you know, there's there's a liberty or, or a license there, right. I guess, that you can take. You have flexibility in how you frame what you know. Right, right, and and I think the the uh, the emotional, imaginative depth of what Tolkien did allowed him to break through some of the uh, the critical bias against fantasy writing because his fantasy is of an order that most fantasy writers cannot deliver. Uh, so along those lines, as we uh, get up close to wrapping up the podcast, you've read a lot of books, as we mentioned before, uh, with a book list and then obviously being an English professor and, and generally spending a lot of time reading. Um, we, a number, well, now months ago, it was last year, uh, we had a short podcast where we discussed classic books that, that we enjoyed, but I think that was just Cameron and myself on that. Uh, what books from you, I guess... Two perspectives. Subjectively, uh, what books do you think everyone should read? And then objectively, as a English professor, what books should everyone read? What, uh, so from both points of view, so sub the, I guess your favorite books, and then objectively, what are books that people should read as a, as a human? Yeah, the, um, there, there used to be, and, and, and there was a great the, the, the poet and critic T.S. Eliot said it doesn't, and he overstates this, but it's, there's still some value in what he said. It doesn't matter what 
uh, books people read, but they should they should all read the same ones. Um, it used to be you could assume you could assume that educated speakers of English uh, had read the King James Bible, had read the major plays of Shakespeare, uh, had read uh, Milton, had read Pilgrim's Progress. Um, you used to be able to assume a knowledge of those things, and, and probably you could add Chaucer to that list. Uh, you could assume a knowledge of, of these, uh, these canonical authors, these canonical works. Um, and when, and, and it's much harder to assume that anymore. Uh, I, uh, we were reading a, uh, uh, an, an essay by Charles Lamb, the uh, early 19th century uh, essayist, and he makes a facetious allusion, a, a playful allusion about the lilies of the field. And I asked myself, okay, what's the allusion here? What's the passing reference here? And maybe it was too early in the morning or something. None of my students seemed, and they didn't, give, didn't even give me Sidney Poitier or Poitier. They, they gave, I mean, this is a reference to uh, the most famous sermon in, 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 um, in Christian thought, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a playful, a facetious illusion, but it's still an illusion. Um, and uh, so I, 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 the, that list I just gave you, the, these, the, the Bible, the major plays of Shakespeare, uh, Milton, Pilgrim's Progress, probably put Chaucer on that list. These, these are works that just everyone should read so that uh, we, we share uh, a kind of literary knowledge that can deepen our discourse. When we talk together and we can refer to shared texts, I would say so, a few, add a few things in translation. I would say uh, Dante's uh, um, uh, Comedia, his Divine Comedy. Or so most people just read the Inferno, right? Yeah, that's uh, which is unfortunate. But okay, if you only have to read one, if you're only going to read one part, it'd probably be the Inferno. Um, though the uh, Purgatorio and the uh, Paradiso are also wonderful. The um, uh, and of course I have personal favorites. I'm uh, a great fan of Dostoevsky, who, whom I confess I have to read in translation. I'm a great fan of the poetry of some great Chinese poets like uh, Du Fu, Li Bai, um, Bai Zui, um, and which I read in, in translation. But um, the, uh, uh, and, and I have some nonfiction books that uh, I, I think are uh, deserving of attention. But I'll just mention one I can, can recommend. Uh, short books with a clear conscience, because uh, I'm not burdening the, uh, the uh, Peter Medawar's The Limits of Science. Peter Medawar is a Nobel laureate in medicine, and his uh, his philosophical reflections on the limits of science, I think, is is very rewarding. That's a personal favorite. It's not, you know, it's not on the list mm -hmm. with with Shakespeare and. And right. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but uh, but I would say, and go back to writing. To be a good to be a good writer, 
become a voracious reader because that will 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 stock it will expose you to models of good writing it will uh it will furnish your imagination with resources for writing um and read there david mikes has an excellent book out uh, titled uh, slow reading in a hurried age um and obviously it's it's a book the title doesn't say it all but the title does signal much of what he has to say Refl by slow reading he means reflective reading meditative reading the kind of reading that literature invites us um to do to you don't want i mean you have to be some kind of fool to uh to speed read shakespeare to speed read milton to speed read wordsworth that uh, or or even the great writers of fiction you don't want to speed read uh dostoevsky or dickens or, or harry Thackeray. potter i didn't Sorry, say that Springing <laughs> um, so, up to a modern canon. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I, but, but read. If you want to be a good writer, read. Read a lot. Re and read those. The, there's a, uh, John Ciardi talks about uh, horizontal audiences and vertical audiences. Horizontal audiences are those, um, the audience con uh, contemporary to the author. Vertical audiences are the audiences that the author attracts across time, across generations. Uh, there is a reason that we're still reading uh, Sophocles and Aeschylus thousands of years after their death. Uh, and, and that there, there's, or, or uh, uh, we're, we're still reading the Beowulf poet, whose name we will never know, but the Beowulf poet or, or William Langland or, Anyway, the, the uh, your reading don't just uh, become a captive of our age because our age doesn't know everything. In fact, our age knows less than it thinks it knows. Visit earlier times. Visit the. There, there's a reason that uh, we're still reading Shakespeare. We're still reading Marlowe. Um, we're still reading Ben Jonson. Um, the uh, earlier. Ages have something to teach, um, not just about uh, specific uh, questions and concerns, but about the nature of writing, too. So anyway. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. Um, having grown up in your house, um, we are familiar with many of those, though I will confess myself a layman on a few of those authors uh, still. So uh, as we wrap up this podcast... Go ahead and go grab uh, Milton and Chaucer uh, and uh, sit down for a good long read. So thank you, Dad, Bryce. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.